copy of God's Word, if you turn to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8, be taking our text from. Romans chapter 8. We're going to look at verses 31 through 39 this morning, Lord willing. Romans chapter 8, starting with verse 31. And here the Bible says, What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again. <clears throat> who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long, we are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for the reading of your word today. Help us as we continue to expound upon this text as we go through this sermon series of Rooting Through Romans. Lord, thank you for all the things that you've revealed to us thus far. Lord, keep our minds focused on, on what's important today. Lord, open our hearts to be able to receive the word, and it will not be returned unto you void. God, help us today. We need you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we pick back up this morning in this text at where we left off last time. Last time we looked at that one verse, verse 30. And we saw so many things in there. And we, we looked at uh, God's calling, God's justification, and then God's glorification of us. And we saw these are all things, doctrinal things, that uh, the Bible tells us about that God does with the, those that are saved. And he preordained all this. It tells us he predestined those to be conformed into the image, image of his son. And we've looked at that heavily for the last two weeks about God's predestination, his foreknowledge and, and his justification and all that. But this morning as we look at these nine verses, it speaks to us of God's great love and God's sovereignty and God's saving power and God's everlasting salvation, our everlasting salvation. That's really what all this sums up to. It is proof from God's word that our salvation is eternal and nothing can separate us from God's love. And so I've titled the message this morning, God is for us. And he is. He's for us. And so as we look at this, look at verse 31 again. It says, what shall we say to these, what then shall, um, sorry, what shall we then say to these things? So here in the beginning of verse 31, we see that first part that's asking about what shall we say of these things? What about these things? What things is he speaking of? Well, the things we've been studying about for the last several weeks. If you, uh, I'll see if you start all the way up in the top of this chapter, you'll see there's no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. So we cannot be condemned for our sins. Jesus took our sins. He paid our sin debt. We cannot come under condemnation for any sins anymore because he took that. 
uh, it tells us that the uh, those that belong to God, His Spirit indwells within them. That's in our text. That the children of God are heirs, yea, joint heirs with Christ. It tells us that the Spirit makes intercession for us. It tells us that God works all things together for good to those that love love Him. And we talked about how that means those good things that God has prepared. And it also talks of his foreknowledge, that he foreknew us before the foundations of the earth, the Bible tells us. And he predestined or selected us to be conformed into the image of his son. And that he called us. That was his effectual calling upon our lives to come unto him. That's what God's calling does. He's calling us to himself. And then it talks about his justification, where our slate is wiped clean and we can stand before him innocent because of Christ. When God looks at us, he sees his son Jesus because he took our sin. So we're justified. And it talks about his sanctification of us. It's a daily process we go through where we conform more into the image of his son. And then finally, his glorification of those that are saved. We'll see that final glorification when we reach heaven. And so all those, I just named off 11 things that we've studied about already in this chapter. And that's what Paul is saying. What shall we then say to these things? What shall we say to them? Well, the conclusion we can draw to this, he answers in the next part of the verse. Look at it again in verse 31. If God be for us, who can be against us? Now, that little word if right there. Sometimes we use that word, and it has a question behind it. Like, if I give you $5, will you go to the store? Well, you may go to the store, and you may not. So if is kind of, it depends. But here, the word if is used in a totally different way. You could really use the word since there. And so you could say it like this. Since God is for us, who could be against us? <laughs> because God is great. God is great. God is good. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's omniscient, omnipresent. He's sovereign. And so if he's for us, then who in the world, or who even in heaven, can be against us? <laughs> On heaven, earth, or below the earth, who could be against us since God's for us? And so there's no question God is for us. That's why I titled the message, God is for us. And it's a known fact. It's not a question about it because it's, we're told over and over and over about God's great love for us and how he is for us. And I'm glad of that. We could stop the message right now and say, that's good enough. <laughs> I mean, just knowing that God is for us should be enough to, to just overwhelm us and overjoy us and to praise him and to, to shout and say, thank you, God. Because the opposite of being for someone is being against them. The one person you don't want against you is God. The world can be against you. Everybody in the world can be against you. That's all right. But if God's against you, it ain't all right. You're not going to make it. And the world, trust me, the world is against you. I'm going to talk about three different uh, people, if you will, or entities that are against you. And we're going to see that uh, through this text. But to be the opposite of somebody that's for you is it means that you're their enemy. You're against them. And so we studied last time how that when we were saved, we know are no longer enemies of God. 
that he justified us and that made us on his side. <laughs> and so listen, there, the first of all, the thing I want to point out, and Paul's going to kind of tell us about it as we go down through these verses, but the first entity or people that are against you is the world. The world absolutely hates you. They hate Christians. They're against you and they're against God. And Jesus even told, told his disciples that they hated me first. They're going to hate you. And they will. If you're a Christian, a true Christian, the world hates you. They hate everything you stand for, everything you say. They want nothing better than to wipe you off the face of this earth. And they would do it if, they, if given the chance. Uh, the government hates you. That's part of the world. Um, everywhere you go, everybody that you see that's not a Christian, they have a hatred towards you in their heart. It's a natural-born hatred. And the world hates us. They would like to see Christians destroyed off this earth. That's what happened during the, the days of the Romans. Uh, they tried to destroy Christianity off the face of the earth and then become a Christian nation, of all things. But the Bible tells us in Psalms, Psalm 118, 6 and 7, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear what can man do unto me. The Lord taketh my part with them that help me. Therefore shall I see my desire upon them that hate me. And so the psalmist, he understood this fact, that the world hates me. And But you know what? God's on my side. The Lord is on my side. And I will not fear what man can do to me. And man can do things to you. Man can persecute you, prosecute you, can torture you, can do all kinds of things to you. But when God's on your side... We don't have to fear that because they cannot destroy our soul. The psalmist also writes in Psalm 56 and 9, When I cry unto thee, then shall mine enemies turn back. This I know, and listen to what he said, For God is for me. What we titled the message, God is for us. He's for us. We see it all through the Old Testament, the New Testament alike. God's for us. Not only is the world against you as a Christian, but Satan is against you. A lot of times we, I believe we tend to forget that Satan is real. He's out there. He's a roaring lion, the Bible says, seeking whom he may devour. And he is our enemy. He's against us. He hates us. He hates God. He knows he's already lost, but he's going to do everything in his devilish, dead-level best to try to counteract that somehow. He'll never be able to, but that's what he'll continue to do until the Lord cast him into that lake of fire. But the devil is against us. He wants to destroy us. If you're saved, he cannot destroy your soul or your spirit. Now, he can make you stumble and fall, tempt you, and you'll give in to those temptations. He'll use every little vice that you have, every besetting sin that you have, and he'll use that against you and try to destroy your testimony. If he can destroy your testimony, that put that gives God a black eye. You know, he's going to give God a black eye by making his children look bad, and he'll do it if you allow him to. Uh, Jesus, he's talking to Peter one time, and he told Peter that Satan desired him; he wanted to sift him as wheat. And then he said, "But I'm praying for you." So God is for us in those times that we're tempted and tested and trials. And the time Satan comes up against us, he's praying for us. Jesus sits on the right hand of the Father making intercession for us. 
And so he knows those times we're being tempted, tried by the devil, and uh, the stumbling blocks there, he's praying for us. Peter learned a lesson the hard way. After God or Jesus had told him that Satan wanted to sift him, he was praying for him, Peter did give in to temptation. In fact, we all know the story that he denied Christ. Not once, but three times. But listen to what Peter said later on in life after he had sought forgiveness from the Lord. In 1 Peter 5 and 8, Peter writes this. He says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. If anybody understood what it meant to be sought after by Satan, it was Peter. And so he's warning Christians. This wasn't just written to those that were right there in his audience. This was for, for our benefit. That's why the Lord put it in his word. And he says, listen, you better be sober. That means the opposite of drunk. Sober means to be alert, aware, very cautious of your surroundings and your circumstances. Vigilant. That means always watching. It, it don't mean that you know you think about Satan every now and then. It means constantly looking for the ways he's trying to make you stumble. Vigilant like a soldier is. A soldier stands vigilant when he's guarding the camp. And so that's what we're to do. We're to be sober, clear-minded, vigilant, always on guard because our adversary, that means your enemy, the devil, it says, Satan, Beelzebub, you can call him all kinds of things if you want to, but uh, he is our enemy. And he's always trying to make us fall. But, praise God, God is for us. And since God is for us, the devil is not going to, not going to get what he, what he really wants. He wants our soul. He wants to see that we go to hell and spend eternity in hell, but he's not going to be able to do that with Christians. A Christian cannot lose his salvation. The devil can't take it from you, but he can sure make you stumble. And so we always got to be aware of that. So we have the world that's always against us. We have Satan who is certainly always against us, but there's someone else against us that you may not have been aware of. That is you. That's me. We're against ourselves many, many times. In fact, you could say it like this. We are our own worst enemies. And we are. We, we tend to see things in a different way than a lot of people see it when it comes to ourselves. Now, we can point out all everybody's flaws and their sins and all this. I can look and tell you all your problems. You know, your haircut's ugly. Mine looks great. My wife cuts my hair. She knows what she's doing. No, seriously, we can look and see everybody else's flaws, but we look in the mirror and we don't even see the real person that's standing there looking back at us. And so what happens is we start deceiving ourselves. That's what the Bible tells us, that we deceive ourselves. Jeremiah says it good there in Jeremiah 17 and 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? You see that? Deceitful, our hearts are deceitful. A lot of people you hear people say, well, you know, it's been on my heart to do this and that. Well, you better be careful what you think's on your heart because your heart is deceitful above all things. And the, and the Bible says it's desperately wicked. You know what desperate means, don't you? You'll do anything in your power to make this come about. You're desperate. Your heart is desperate to cause you to sin. And so what it'll do, it'll deceive you to think that that sin is okay because you're so desperate for it your heart will convince you, well, it's not that bad. 
you know, it really, if you if you think about it in this way, it's really not even a sin. And so your heart will cause you to deceive yourself. James warns us of this. Over in James chapter 1, and that whole chapter is filled full of caution to, to those that are saved. But James 1 and 22 says, But be you doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. And he starts talking about all this deception that we allow ourselves to go under. We deceive our own selves. Listen, you can deceive other people. You can try to deceive God, but you can't. But when it comes to yourself, you'll deceive yourself before you know it. And you won't even see it. And so we've got to be careful. We are our own worst enemies. And sometimes our fall is because of our own self. We've allowed ourselves to be this way. But this is the good part. Because God is for us, then we can't even separate ourselves from his love. We can't counteract what God has already predestined. We cannot lose our salvation because of our wickedness, because of our deceitfulness, because of our desperate heart that's wicked. We can't even do that. So the world can't prevent God from doing what he wants to do. The devil can't prevent God from what he's wanting to do. And we can't prevent God from what he's wanting to do. <laughs> because God is, what's the word? Sovereign above all. And so, despite our wickedness, we can't separate ourselves from the love of God. That's how much he loves us. In fact, Paul is talking about it in the next verse. Back in Romans 8 and 32, look at it. It says, He that spared not his own son. And if you'll notice that son is a capital S, that means the person of Jesus Christ. But delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? All right, so what Paul's doing here now in these next few verses is making the case for eternal security. He's going to start naming off all these things that come against us, all these vices and, and everything, but the, the, the conclusion is you're eternally saved despite all these things. And so if God would go as far as to give up his only begotten son, he gave up, it says there, he spared not his own son. In other words, he's the one that caused his son to come here to fulfill his wishes to die for the sins of us, for our sins. And so how in the world, if God's going to do that, how in the world would, could the world or Satan or ourselves ever do anything to prevent what he wants to be done and to separate us from him? And why would he not give us all things? All right, now, when you hear that all things, don't be fooled into thinking like these televangelists make you think on TV. They'll say, well, now the Bible says, it says that he wants to give you all things. So all you got to do is speak it and claim it and name it and he'll give it to you. And he'll give you a mansion down here on earth. You can have the fanciest car. I mean, they'll tell you all these things that God's going to give you because the Bible said he'll freely give us all things. And so they're thinking in the flesh. They're thinking about cars and houses and and bank accounts and and jobs and and all these things that fulfill your fleshly desires that's what these false teachers are doing and you can pull them up on C, uh, cbn and all these other so-called christian stations you can see these televangelists get up there and and speak all these words and twist god's word from what it really means he's not talking about your health and your wealth or your prosperity here 
He's not talking about he'll give you all homes and cars and, and money and, and great jobs. He's not talking about that. When it says he, he's going to give us all things, he's talking about spiritual things. One of our biggest problems when reading the Bible is our flesh. Our flesh causes us to look at the Bible wrong sometimes and think about it in a fleshly way. So our flesh wants to look at that and say, hmm, well, God wants to give me all things. You know, I'd really like to have a, a brand new Nissan uh, Frontier, four-wheel drive, or, or Toyota Tacoma. I'd love it. And you know, if God wants to give me all things, then why not? Why not just ask him? I'll never get one. I will never get one. Because, listen, our flesh is contrary to the spirit. When you're reading God's Word, studying God's Word, you've got to look at it through spiritual eyes, not fleshly eyes. You've got to look at it, approach it from a, 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 a spiritual way. And our problem is we look at it a fleshly, physical standpoint instead of a spiritual standpoint. And so that's why you have a lot of heretical teaching. That's why you've got a lot of false religions and cults out there. They twist God's Word to make it mean something that it does not. Here is talking about all those things that God has promised that lays in store for us. All the spiritual gifts that he has for us. He loves us so much, why would he not want to give us all things? So our spiritual eyes, if you want to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, starting with verse 6 and going down through verse 16. We see how, how the spirit and the flesh... Uh, uh, go against each other. And so look at it here. 1 Corinthians 2 and 6. How be it we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor the princes of this world that come to naught. But we speak the wisdom of God in the mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Look at verse 9. But as it is written, eye has not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him. All those things it's talking about right there are future things. Our eyes has not seen it, our, our ears have not heard it, but God has prepared all these things that are in store for us. We're not seeing them yet, but we will. And But look at verse 10, it's the key. But God has revealed them unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. You see, the fleshly man, the carnal man, can't see the deep things of God. And we'll see why in the next verses. Look at it. Verse 11. For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the Spirit of man which is in him? Even so, the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. You see that? The things freely given to us of God. Well, what did it say back in Romans? That he wanted to give us these things, all things. These are the things. Verse 13, which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth. Comparing spiritual things with spiritual. See that? Not worldly things and carnal things or physical things. They're spiritual things. 
But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, that he might instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So here Paul gives us a clear, a, a clear case here. That those that are saved can see things through a spiritual means, not a worldly means. The world cannot. He said the world can't because these things have to be spiritually discerned. Discerned means understood. The world can't understand the deep things of God, the deep things, those spiritual matters. And so that's the all things. It's not, not physical stuff. Now, go back to Romans 8 and 33, and we'll look at the next three verses there. It says, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again. Who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us? Verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sore? And so here in these three verses, Paul gives us three who's. Who shall lay anything against the charge of God's elect? Who is he that condemneth? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And notice in verse 33, he mentions God's elect. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Now, don't let that word elect scare you. There's a lot of people see that word and they just fall to pieces. And they're like, am I the elect? Or is it just the Jews? Who's the elect here? I don't know. Am I saved? Am I elected? Listen, in the Old Testament, the elect was talking about the Jews. In the New Testament, the elect is talking about Christians, those that belong to Christ. And so it's, it's all Christians. The word elect simply means chosen or selected. If you're saved, you've been chosen, you've been predestined by God to be saved. And that's just as clear as it can be. God's elect are those that are mentioned in the previous verses, verses 28 through 30 here in Romans chapter 8. Look at it. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn of many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Now, didn't we settle that that's talking about us? That's talking about Christians? Also, those that are truly saved, you are one of the elect. You're God's elect. And ain't nobody or nothing can undo that. And then, so there's seven things there in verse 35. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword. And Paul's saying even all this stuff, it can't come in, it can't prevent God from doing what he intends to do with the elect, those that are saved, Christians, those that belong to the church, God's church, not the building. And so then Paul makes a direct quote from the book of Psalms. Look at the next verse, verse 36. As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. And that's come from Psalms 44 and 22, which says, Yea, for thy sake are we killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. A direct quote there from the psalmist. 
And what this is doing, this is to show that, yes, God's people will have to go through trials. I beg your pardon. I never promised you a rose garden. That used to be an old country song. Listen, God never promised us a rose garden down here on earth. So we will have to go through trials and tribulations. Don't think it's strange, brethren. Uh, but it talks about being led to the slaughter like sheep. That's why Peter says this in his epistle in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 14. He says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you, but rejoice inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. If you be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the spirit of, of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. So those that are saved will suffer persecution. We will see tribulation, stress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. Those things are, are just going to be part of being a Christian. And we are, you know, in essence, killed all the day long. And so God never said our way would be easy, but he did say that he would be with us. He would not leave us nor forsake us. That promise is given throughout the Bible several times. And so that's why Paul continues in our next verses in Romans 8, verse 37. He says, Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor death, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul gives off that big list of things, but he, he starts out here, he says, no. All these things that come against us, the tribulation, the trials, the persecution, the famine, the naked peril, sword, none of that, nay, none of that can separate us from the love of God. He says, we're more than conquerors through him that loved us. That's speaking of God. And so none of those things can separate us. It cannot hinder our future glory. And none of them can come between us and eternal life. Despite all these things here, Paul says, Look, I'm persuaded of this. This is, this is a fact that none of these things can come between us and God. And remember what we studied about and about God's love previously in Romans chapter 5. Listen to what it says in Romans 5. 5 through 11. It says, And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. That's us. We were the ungodly, but Christ died for us. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, while you were yet ungodly, you were disgusting, low-down, filthy, rotten, stinking sinner, he died for you. Nobody else do that. He said, no, nobody else going to do that but him. But, uh, but God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, 
much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also join God through our Lord Jesus Christ by whom we have now received the atonement. So we've already received the atonement. Our sins have been wiped clean, washed clean, atoned for. Jesus did it. And he says there, when we were enemies, that's one thing, but we were reconciled and made right by God through Jesus Christ, by his death. And so nothing, nothing can separate us from God's love. It is that great. God is a good God. He's always been good to us. Despite our shortcomings, our, our failures, our willful sins, our rebellion, God still loves us and he is for us. He's for us. Do you really think for one minute that God would allow anything to disrupt his plan of how he sent his only begotten son, Jesus, here to die for the sins of all men? Do you really think that God would allow anything to hinder that plan that he, he set forth. No. God's not going to allow anything to come between him and his saved. He's good God. And he'll accomplish that which he pleases. I like what it says in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. We'll be finished. Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. There's an expected end for all Christians. We've already been studying about it. Our expected end is when we meet Him in glory. Our expected end is when we reach heaven and we have the glorified body, we have that glorified mind. That's, that's going to be one of the greatest things. That crystal clear mind like Christ. And that's our expected end. And God says, listen, I ain't going to let anything come between you and that. I've already selected you for that. You're already on your way. Just waiting. It's just We're just waiting. And so in conclusion, what more can be said than God is for us. He's for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the message today. Thank you for your promises and knowing how good of a God that you are. Lord, how nothing can can alter your plans. Nothing can separate us from your love. Nothing can prevent us from having eternal life. Lord, it's just you. We love you, Lord. God, I pray for those individuals today that have never been saved. Lord, they're living in sin. God, would you convict their heart? Show them the need to be saved before it's everlasting too late. We know when we close these eyes in death, Lord, we're going to go to one place or the other. Lord, you said in your word that you're not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. God, we know there'll be many that'll go to hell, but Lord, we know that it's not your desire for them to do that. Would you help them, Lord? Would you convict them? Lord, would you help us be able to reach them? We'll give you all the praise and honor and glory for it. Thank you, God, that you are for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, that uh, that was a lot of verses uh, for me to cover in one message. I usually don't cover that many at once, but uh, I thought it all flowed together and we needed to take it together. 
And I'm enjoying these studies through Romans. That was part number 29. And so um, we're only about halfway through <laughs> this book. So it's going to take us a little while to get through it. But boy, there's some things coming up. It's just wonderful. And I'm excited to continue through this. And uh, uh, are all hearts and minds clear this morning? All right. In fear of the Lord, we're separated.